The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Wow, I am uh, nostalgic watching that video. My, my kids were a part of Impacts over the years. We've been, this is, I think, the 22nd year for us to do impact clubs here at TBC. And it is a ton of fun and it is an awesome opportunity really for many in our body to become a part of evangelism in our city. So please uh, check out the opportunities uh, out in the lobby to be a driver, host home, um, provide food, all the different things. We'll be telling you more about that in the, the weeks to come. Well, good morning, you guys. My name is Shannon, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege for me to uh, be with you guys today. We're uh, in the middle of a series that we've entitled Rebuilding. It's a study in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I realize that there's always somebody that's here for the first time, and so I'm going to do a real quick uh, review to bring you up to speed, give you some context. So Israel has been in exile over the centuries to Babylon and now to Assyria, But in keeping his promises to his people, God has raised up Ezra to rebuild the temple, and now he has raised up Nehemiah uh, to rebuild the city walls and the gates. Nehemiah is a a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, uh, the Assyrian king, and uh, God causes Artaxerxes to have such favor on Nehemiah and his plan that uh, he appoints him to be the governor over Judah. He supplies him with a small cavalry for traveling safety as they travel there. He gives him building supplies and letters of authority so he can pass through the different regions and uh, and the funds to carry out this, this great work. So let me take a second and pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that we have to really consider uh, this picture that we see here in Nehemiah 5 of a peacemaker. Father, I pray you'd prick our hearts, help us to consider what it all means, the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Like I said, uh, we're gonna be looking at Nehemiah 5. You can go ahead and turn there if you would like. Uh, Last week, Chase talked to us about how Nehemiah dealt with the bullies outside of Israel. And today, I'm gonna be, we're gonna be looking at the bullies, sadly, within God's people. I'll pick it up in verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters were many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of this famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and for our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So there is, this, this, this chapter opens with great alarm. Like there's, a, there's an outcry in the camp towards their very own brethren, right, from the people and their wives. And I think that uh, we we can uh, relate to this. We have moments in our lives where we experience this sense of outcry going on within us. I think that we all have kind of an inner judge 
When something doesn't go quite the way it should, we get cut off in a, in a line or somebody cuts in on us in traffic and, and our judge just kind of cries out within us. But to whom do you appeal when you're, when you're powerless? Like who, do you, who do you call on? In this altar, the people of God cry out to God over and over and over again. King David uh, really experienced this and, and put a lot of the, the Psalms together. I mean, he wrote them out. They were the cries of his heart calling out to God, knowing that he was powerless, but he calls out to a God who was powerful. Over the last month, we've seen Ukraine calling out to the world and to the U.S. for help. When you don't have the power to enforce justice, we cry out to a higher power. So what's the injustice that Nehemiah is being informed of here? Well, sadly, some of the Jewish noblemen and officials were exploiting their financially vulnerable Jewish brothers. And there's a number of different circumstances that are described, but to varying degrees, the people were increasingly becoming destitute. So there's an outcry. In essence, Nehemiah, this is wrong. This is wrong. Our own Jewish brothers have become to us like merciless foreign oppressors. Help us. Now we have to remember as we, as we see this that there's a context here. I mean, the people are building the walls and the gates. So all those that were a part of that um, would not only build during the day, but we've read in chapter four that they were required to stay there overnight to protect the work that had, uh, that had gone on during the day. And so they couldn't go back to their farms and their vineyards during the evening and on weekends. And so those who had sufficient sized families or a population of servants, they probably did okay. They probably could keep their, uh, uh, their harvesting and, and, and all going. But those who didn't were really in a tough spot, right? Like if you miss um, the season for plowing or you miss the season for planting or you miss the season for harvesting, like, like you've really missed the whole year's produce. And so then they started mortgaging their farms and their land. And then those, those mortgages came due because they didn't have the produce. They had no money to pay the debt. Meanwhile, there's a famine in the land. Like the land's not producing much to begin with. All the while, the noblemen and the officials, brothers, right? Kindred people, they're charging exorbitant interest rates. Some of the scholars think it could have been as high as 40 or 50%. And people were being forced to, to either sell their farms or to put their sons and their daughters into slavery for a time, hoping that they could buy them back. People are panicking. But God had provided Nehemiah. He's a true leader, and as we're gonna see today, he was a peacemaker. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, for, uh, they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, so my opening question is, to each of us, are you more of a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? Are you more of a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? There's lots of professions that, uh, that we turn to in society when, when uh, hard times happen, right? 
counselors, social workers, lawyers, police officers, judges, teachers, principals, coaches, pastors, and of course, parents. Right? This is what we, we turn to them when, when, when things go awry and we look to them to help guide us to find peace. But here's the question. What kind of peace do they guide us towards? What kind of peace are they after? And it all comes down to um, what they believe is possible and the, the personal sacrifice that they're willing to make. I would say this, that God's people are called to advocate for him and for the power of the gospel that graciously interrupts the status quo of, well, that's just the way it is. Doesn't get any better than this. To point hurting people to wholeness and to peace. In 2 Corinthians 5, we, we really see this, uh, uh, this responsibility that we have. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. So Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection changed the calculus of all relationships. Like, like the math, the math now has changed. And there is a way for us to be restored to God and for us to be restored to one another. Nehemiah is a peacemaker. I love this about Nehemiah. I didn't see it at first as I began to study this. I don't know how I could miss it, but I, I just didn't see it at first. But I think that Nehemiah models for us at least four characteristics of a peacemaker. He's committed to justice. He's committed to impartiality. He's committed to truth. And he's committed to restoration. Nehemiah is committed to justice. Let's pick it up in verse six. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that, uh, that they may be sold to us. And they were silent. They couldn't find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Well, the first thing we read here is something that may cause us to scratch our head a little bit. Um, really, we just saw this in the text here. Nehemiah becomes, he describes, very angry. We have to ask the question, I thought that anger, like, isn't anger sinful? Isn't that wrong? And I would say that I think oftentimes when that judge is going off inside our head because of some way we've been wronged, oftentimes in our short-sightedness, that anger really can be sinful. But not all anger is sinful. I like to ask myself this question when I'm wrestling with, uh, with whether this is the right thing to be mad about, and it's this. 
Um, would God be angry at this? Would God be angry at this? Would he fight for this cause? And Nehemiah, in this situation, says, absolutely, yes, this should not be. Y'all, in a world that, that disciples us to avoid conflict, peacemaking takes a commitment to move towards it. Conventional wisdom believes that we make peace by avoidance. But the peacemaker knows that there is no peace without healing, and there's no healing without tough conversations and work. And Nehemiah believes that peace is achievable, and he's ready to roll up his sleeves, right, and get in the middle of the the hurt, in the middle of uh, the confusion that's going on. And I ask the question, well, what about us? What about you? Is it worth the risk of rolling up your sleeves and getting into the middle of it? Or have we grown so accustomed and, and so do we believe the, the mantra that no good deed goes unpunished to where it just causes us to say, you know what, it's safer for me just to stay in my lane, keep my head down, mind my own business. I remember when I was young, my, my mama and I were going to the grocery store and I still remember those little pads you'd step on and the, and the door would swing open and sort of slide open. And so I can still remember that. She and I are walking in and a classmate is walking out smoking a cigarette. And yes, at that time you could smoke a cigarette in a grocery store. So I guess that kind of dates me a little bit. Realize that. Gasoline was still 23 cents a gallon. So no, no, no. no. Um, but so she, she sees this young man, a classmate of mine. She walks up to him, grabs the cigarette out of his mouth, holds it up to him and says, now fella... Don't you know these things can kill you? She drops it down and rubs it out, and his jaw is hanging down. And I'm like, Mama, I'll see you on the bread aisle. Like, I am like, what are you doing? My grandmother, and I love this about her, but she was a peacemaker. She didn't believe in just keeping your head down, staying in your lane. And I love that. In verse 7, he says this. He says, I took counsel with myself. In other words, he he needed time to ask some more questions, to really understand what was going on here, to look at the charges from all sides, not to judge too quickly. And I think this leads us to the next characteristic that Nehemiah models. He's not only committed to justice, he's committed to impartiality. Nehemiah is committed to impartiality. He recognizes that both parties here bear the image of God, the the Imago Dei. These noblemen and officials, when they heard the appeal that the people made to Nehemiah, like I'm sure they thought, oh, check this out. He's telling Nehemiah, he's one of us. This is, he's gonna turn the other way. This is gonna be great. I'm sure they probably thought that because Nehemiah was one of them. And that's what they would have done. But they don't know Nehemiah. Nehemiah is committed to being impartial. Ever heard, uh, had a friend share with you, family member share with you, like something that happened, you know, some, some, some way they were wronged. And they tell you the story, and, and, and the more you hear, the angrier you, you get, and you're like, man, I can't wait to bring some justice down on somebody, right? I just want to get out there, and I can't believe that that happened to you. 
another uh, growing up story. My, um, one day I was pulling the bike out of the bike rack at school, and as I did, I actually knocked over another bike. And I'm in the process of standing it back up. Lo and behold, the owner of that bike is standing behind me. He's bigger than I am and an older grade than I am. And he's like, that was my bike. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. I'm Boom! And he sucker punches me and, uh, and knocks the wind out of me, and I'm down, and he's riding off. I get home, humiliated. My mom finds out, right? Well, I'm going to tell you, mama bear came out. Like, the claws came out. The roar was going on. She was ready to get in the car, let's go find that kid, and bring some justice down on that kid. Because, of course, her son was not in the wrong in any way. And I'm like, mom, mom, seriously, I've got to fight my own battles on this. But it's so hard, is what I realize. It's so hard when we hear one side of a story to put away the claws to bring down the roar long enough to gather all the facts. You guys, we absolutely need the Spirit's wisdom and patience and strength to resist the us versus them mentality. It's so hard. Uh, James in chapter two says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Man, that's hard. Scott Sauls, in his book, Befriend, he describes a a well-known Bible story to show how quickly our judgmental hearts can lead us to villainize others. He writes this. He says, this is what happens in groups with a narrow us. Colosseum culture forms. The mob organizes. A common enemy is named and the caricature is established. The woman caught in adultery the sinner, not a person, but a thing, not a she, but an it's, not an image bearer, but an animal, not a woman, but a whore. Then the pouncing, then the shame, but not Jesus. He goes on to write, not Jesus. Jesus left alone with this woman simply says to her two things. I do not condemn you and leave your life of sin. I had breakfast this week with uh, an old friend, Jeff Stiegel. Um, I hadn't connected up with him in a long time. He is the uh, director of Feed My Sheep, uh, which is a ministry to the homeless and the needy in Bell County. And uh, our college ministry is going to be serving there in a couple of weeks, so we got together to kind of plan some things. And, uh, and he reminded me of the mission of the organization. He says, to feed those that are hungry physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He says, Shannon, what, what I find so amazing is that all the good people in Simple Belton who come to serve down here, people that are well-fed, well-dressed, well-situated in, uh, in, in our area, they come down to serve food to those that are um, kind of down and out. And in the process, what I always hear from them is that I think that... Um, I think it really fed my soul more than it fed, you know, them. And he says to me, he goes, Shannon, here's the, here's the secret. He goes, all of us are hungry. We just don't know it. He says, and that's really what, he, what has allowed him to treat everyone he meets with love and dignity and mercy. And I love that. 
And he's telling me this, and I'm just crying as uh, to see someone who genuinely, genuinely does not show favoritism and loves people well. Well, this brings us to our next characteristic of a peacemaker that Nehemiah models. He, Nehemiah is committed to truth. I think often we err with truth on, you know, either truth or love or love or truth to the exclusion of the other. And in regards to that, Tim Keller has written this. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports us, it affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. What we need is truth and love. Together, both are necessary. So I would say this, that the only way for us to live in true love and unity amidst all the diversity and the brokenness in this world is for us to see past our own story and be established in God's story. See, a peacemaker must help both parties see past their truth to the truth, to God's truth. If I take another run at uh, what Nehemiah says uh, to this uh, group of noblemen, and uh, here's my paraphrase. Well, it sure didn't take long for us to do to ourselves what our oppressors had done to us, did it? We have been in exile to the nations over these last centuries, and many of our people have become the property of Gentiles whom we have been in the process of of buying back. We, We pay their life debt. We redeem them so they can be free. And now you're turning right around and you're selling them back into slavery simply because you can make a profit, all the while excusing your immoral actions with, it's only business. It's just business. I think Nehemiah clearly knew the law. I think he also knew that these noblemen knew the law as well. In Leviticus 25, God tells his people, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and, and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. Do I have this in here twice? Sorry, I don't think so. I lost my place. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So Nehemiah is reminding them, reminding these nobles that, guys, we are a redeemed people twice over. Like God's love and faithfulness and power, he brought Judah out of Egypt and settled us in the land of Canaan. We went into exile and now he is brought, bringing us out of the land of Assyria, Assyria and resettling us. Like we are a redeemed people twice over. So live with proper perspective. Like you owe the Lord everything you have. So be humble, be generous, be merciful, And I'm sure these men have been justifying their actions. I think oftentimes, you know, like we can do, we can justify our actions. Uh, But uh, maybe a bit like Peter when he uh, asked Jesus. So Jesus, how many times must I forgive? And he throws out, I think, a 
a number to impress Jesus. I mean, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus wasn't impressed. Seven times 70. The, the people of my kingdom should be known for their mercy and forgiveness and generosity. So Jesus tells Peter the story of a servant and a king. And the servant owes the king 10,000 bags of gold, a clearly unpayable debt. This is a, a life debt. There's no way he's ever going to be able to repay this. And since he knew that the servant had no hopes of repaying the debt, the king orders him and his family to be sold into slavery. Well, the servant begs for time. Please, please have mercy on me. And it just so happens that this particular king is a merciful king. And being merciful, he agrees and he cancels the entirety of the debt. And this servant can't believe his good fortune. I'm sure, you know, runs out of the presence of the king, jumping in the air, clicking his heels, excited for this good fortune. And it's at this point in the parable that the servant encounters a man who owes him a hundred silver coins, a much, much smaller amount. This servant also cannot repay the debts, and he asks for time. He, he begs him, please, please be merciful to me. But this unmerciful servant who had just been forgiven this great debt demands payment, chokes him, and has him thrown into debtor's prison. Well, the king hears about this, and he orders that this un, unmerciful servant be brought back into his presence. He labels him as wicked, and he asks him, why in the world did you not show mercy like the mercy that was shown to you? The servant is then thrown into prison to be tortured until he can pay off his debt. Here's one of the morals of that parable. He who believes he's been forgiven much, loves much. He who believes he's been forgiven little, loves little. I think the reason that some people struggle so much to love compassionately, to serve humbly, to sacrifice generously is because they have not seen their, their sin debt for what it is. I think that was the struggle that Israel had all through their history. I think it's the struggle that Nehemiah is facing in these noblemen as he's looking at them. And I think it's the same struggle oftentimes that is present in the church today. What Nehemiah is doing is connecting the dots that every single thing that we have, all that we are, all our abilities, our intellects, our work ethics, our possessions, they are all gifts from a loving God. They're all really his. And as you begin to wrap your mind around that, you realize, well, all that means that it is deeply, deeply spiritual stuff. And so I asked the question, Shannon, how are you stewarding all that God has given you? How are you stewarding all that you are? And I would ask us, how are you stewarding all that you are and all that you have? Paul says to Timothy, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Good words. 
So Nehemiah is committed to justice, to impartiality, to truth, and finally, Nehemiah is committed to restoration, to making things right. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers my ser- and my servants are lending them money and grain. So let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and their percentage of the money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. So Nehemiah admits that he and his team have also been lending money. But I think that as you look at who Nehemiah is, the integrity that he models all through the book of Nehemiah, I think he was a man who feared the Lord and was abiding in, uh, by the law. I do not think that he was charging any interest. I think also the fact that he was so angry and enraged when he found out what they were doing. So I don't believe that he was a part of that. But, but look what he says. His counsel is, let us abandon and let us return. He's calling them to repent. To repent for the the good of their witness to the outside nations looking on, their enemies, as well as to your fellow brethren that are here in Israel. Repent for the good of your brother's welfare so he can care for himself and live among you. And then finally, for the good of their work. How in the world are we gonna continue forward if we don't trust one another, if we don't have any unity. So he calls them to repent. And the question I have is, is this this real repentance that we're seeing here? Because only real repentance will bring lasting change. Repentance is a change in direction. It's, it's, I'm walking this way, and I have a reason I'm walking this way, and I have a change of heart, and I realize this is not the way I should be walking. And so there's an about face in the way I think and in the actions of my life. If it was just remorse, it would be like, well, I'm caught, and so for a while, I'll act good. But what's needed is real repentance, not only for them, but in our lives as well. I do think based upon their actions and the confession that they make that this is real repentance. The noblemen, I think, repent and they give back what they legally stole and they swear an oath before the priest to do as they promised. And I love this, that he did all of this, Nehemiah did all of this without ever appealing to, oh, that's right, I'm the governor. I actually could take everything you have and just kick you out from among the people. Like, that's what I could do. I have the power to do that. But Nehemiah never did that. He appealed to them as a brother and never lures his position over them. And I love the statement that he makes in verse 13. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. I think the reason it's important for us to be a peacemaker committed to justice, impartiality, truth, and restoration 
is because God's people believe it can be better than that's just the way it is. It doesn't get any better than this. And we're willing to roll up our sleeves and to get in the, in the middle of it all and we counsel, we advocate, we protect, we serve, we, we preach, we teach, we give, and we love. All for the people's joy and God's glory. And I think perhaps Nehemiah is a reminder, you know, to all of us, that wherever God has placed you, like whatever the station in life is that he's called you to, whether that's from the cupbearer to the governor, that we're called to be peacemakers. So let me give you some possible action steps. Actually, I've got some questions, and I'll let the Spirit guide you as you're thinking through these questions as to what he would call you to to change or to do in your life. After we get them all up here, you might take a picture so you can remember them. First one is, are you generous with what God has given you? Are you approachable and willing to hear hard truth in your life? Is there someone from whom you need to seek forgiveness and to make things right? Are you walking in integrity in all areas of your life? And finally, how are you involved in establishing peace in the world? Believe it or not, it can be as simple as walking in truth, just being a person who is sincere, who is honest, who is transparent about who they are. I've often believed that the people of God, the, the kind of fellowship that we enjoy suddenly becomes much more robust and real when we have the courage to have real conversations and be real with who we actually are. Like that, that's one place where we begin to establish the peace around us. It can be sharing the gospel. I mean, this is really God's entrusted to us to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and so share the gospel with those around you. Let folks know about the hope that you have within you, if it's legitimately a hope that you have, and remind them, our God is a God who is seeking the restoration of relationship with people. Let me tell you about how that's happened in my own life and what that looks like. It may be plugging in and serving here at church, I love the, the, the greeters we have as I walk in and see the smiling faces, and it's a reminder of the peace that is uniquely the people of God's. Plug into our, our nursery, our children's area. Plug into youth, junior high, high school. We just put a big one in front of you, which is uh, impact clubs are coming, and it takes an army of people to be able to pull off impact. So there's lots of opportunities for us to establish the peace around us. Maybe it is to go to our, uh, the hub of our website, take a look at For the City, and see all the many um, parachurch organizations that are so needed in this community and that so many of you are a part of already, and look into how you could be a part of serving in one of those ministries that are listed there. But I want you to see how this chapter ends. It's an epilogue of sorts, and and I think that as Nehemiah wrote it, I don't think he realized that the things he says here, he's pointing to somebody else. So let's read it. Pick it up in verse 14. 
Moreover, from that time, I w- from, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took, them, took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work, this work on the wall, and I acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there to work as well. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what uh, was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And then his final uh, statement is his prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So so two things real quickly. The first is Nehemiah practiced what he preached. Like he was serious about this stuff. He lived like God is truly the high judge who will judge favorably those who sincerely seek to know and to do his will. Like it's clear in what he has written out here. He has obviously sanctified God in his heart. Like there's there's an awe of God, a fear of God, a respect of God, a confidence that God is watching all that we are doing and one day we will give an account. He believed that, he lived it out. Secondly, it's this. I think Nehemiah was a peacemaker pointing to the peacemaker. He was a peacemaker pointing to the peacemaker. He was ferocious for justice. He was sent by a king to come and govern uh, people faithfully, wisely, compassionately, and sacrificially. He ruled unlike any other governor. He, he took no land. All the food his, that was served at his table for an army of guests was paid for out of, uh, out of his pockets. And he did all this because the demands, the service was too heavy on this people. When I was going through this, the the first time to preach this out this week, I realized how haunting those words were. I was thinking about this morning, like, what right do I have knowing what my life looked like for 20 years? Like, the opposition I was in towards God. I can't believe that God has, has me in this place to proclaim his truth and his words. But these are haunting words Words that remind us that humanity has a merciless foreign oppressor to whom it is in debt, and Satan's demands are heavy on this people. Perhaps you're here today, and you are oh so aware that there is an outcry going on, not just in Nehemiah 5, but in your own heart. And your life is in debt to an oppressor, and you need the peacemaker to redeem you to pay your life debt, to bring spiritual freedom to you. You guys, the gospel is short and sweet. And it goes like this. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. If that's you, I would so encourage you just to confess that to the Lord in prayer as we pray. Scripture says that all who cry out to God will be saved. Let's pray. Father, the confession of our heart is you are the peacemaker and you have made, you have uh, bought your people. You've redeemed us and there is freedom in Christ. So Father, I just uh, thank you for the truth that you've called us to be ministers of reconciliation, to share your gospel, to, to, to walk in the truth of your gospel, to be established in the peace that your gospel declares. But Father, I also pray for those that just hear their hearts cry that the, the load is heavy upon them because of the enemy that they belong to. So Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, allow them to find freedom in Christ and um, that they would confess that to you today. Thank you, Father, for your love. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.